Anyone know? Yes? Kids can go to Children's Church. Might want to see who Jonah is. All right, Second Kings fourteen, verse twenty-three. Will give us a little context. Second Kings fourteen, twenty-three, and then we'll we'll be in the Jonah chapter one for the rest of our time today. Second Kings fourteen twenty-three says, "In the fifteenth year." of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far north, if you're wondering Lebo Hamath, that's, a, that's like as far north as Israel's going to get, basically. Um, not conquered by Joshua, Solomon got to that point. And then as far as the, the Sea of Araba, this is the south edge, the, the Dead Sea. Uh, according, here, here's why we're reading this. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer, which uh, I found is, is somewhere close to Nazareth, is uh, Jonah's hometown, son of Amittai. Okay, so that's, that's our main character. Um, we see him here described as the servant of the God of Israel, and he's a prophet, and he speaks um, in, in the reign of the second king, Jeroboam. So go ahead and flip over to Jonah chapter 1 in your Bibles, please. Jonah chapter 1. And uh, let me pray, too, as we go there. Uh, God, for your help, we ask that by your Spirit, your, your words would um, speak to our needs, would speak to our spirits. God, we need help from you if we are to understand how to follow you. Uh, I pray you'd help me communicate clearly. Uh, I pray for each one in this room that you would be showing yourself Lord in their lives. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 1, and we will begin by reading through the whole chapter. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it 
to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and roll me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Uh, my goal today is just to walk through this text and uh, just see what we can observe here from Jonah chapter 1. So let's go back to verse 1, Jonah 1.1. 1, 1. What happened? Well, the, the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord happened to Jonah. This is a very common expression uh, for the prophets. Over a hundred times we see the word of the Lord coming. Uh, if you look at verse 1.1 1, 1 of of Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, very similar kind of thing. The word of the Lord comes. And what does God say? Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And maybe we should stop right here because we know what's going to happen next, but ask, is this command unclear somehow? The instructions to Jonah, are they kind of subject to interpretation? Like, well, you know, maybe it used to mean like you're actually supposed to get up and go to the place. But now, you know, in Jonah's day, we've learned how to read scripture in a new way. And, and this really doesn't mean what it appeared. No, right? And I say all that because let's, let's not dare disobey the clear commands of, screech, of scripture and then somehow pretend that we're obeying them because, well, they don't actually say what they clearly say. No, the, the command is clear. Arise, get up, let's go. Don't delay, take action, get up and go. And where are we going? The great city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Um, we should comment a little bit on Assyria because it was pretty bad. Okay? Um, think of the, sort of the worst things you can imagine in history related to violence um, barbarism, torture, cruelty, just despicable, aggressive, celebrating that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we have some writings from some of their leaders, um, you know, talking about 
children walking around with the parent's head on a stick, leaders bragging about their slaughters, how many heads they cut off, piling them up. There's even more graphic things I won't say here. Um, In our day, they would have no qualms about using biological weapons. Um, they're, they're a terrorist state. I mean, the, the only thing I can relate to in, in our day is, is, you know, scenes I would see on the news from ISIS. Um, you know, cages, beheading, that kind of thing. No humanity. And so, all that to say, I, there was probably a lot for Jonah to hate about Assyria, okay? Um, they're a nation very far from the people of God, and in so many ways, everything that... that uh, a good Israelite would, would not be um, happy about visiting, even feeling safe to go visit. Uh, but I do want to point out, note that the, the instruction to Jonah is not just, um, hey, I want you to call out against Nineveh, which was a very common thing for the prophets of God to do. I mean, if you look at the, the later chapters of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah calling out against Egypt, against the Philistines, against Moab, against Ammon, against Damascus, against Babylon. But Jeremiah doesn't actually go to those places with the message. Or if you look at the prophet Amos, Amos calls out against Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and then he finally turns to Judah and Israel. But I don't think Amos took a trip to all those places to tell them his message, right? Jonah is supposed to actually physically go to Nineveh and call out against them. And that's something different. Um, God's not just pronouncing his judgment from afar. He wants to actually send his messenger in the flesh to confront the people of Nineveh with the message. And and what is the message? It's not super clear yet in in chapter 1. Jonah is simply told to call out against it. And what reason does God give that he's sending this message? God says, their evil has come up before me, before me. It's come up into my presence. It's come up before my face, into God's presence, the same thing that Jonah's going to flee from in, in a minute. Their evil has come up before me. They're evil. We, we talk about God judging individuals, and yes, God certainly will. Each one will give an account to God. Uh, But the Bible also teaches clearly that that God judges nations and cities and people groups. And I take it that in some sense, um, there's some way in which a bunch of sinners uh, can be sinning even more sinfully when they're surrounded by a sinful culture in a sinful society, right? In a sinful culture, you have more opportunity to, yeah. And God sees that, and God responds to it. God's not indifferent to history. Um, The nations are under his rule. They're responsible to him. They're held to his standards. God annihilated the Canaanites when he brought Israel into the promised land. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent judgment on Egypt when he brought his people out. God destroys Babylon even after he uses Babylon for his purposes. And well, after this story, if you want to read the book of Nahum, God eventually will destroy Nineveh. And in fact, I would say that God will destroy any nation when what? Well, when their evil comes up in his presence, when it comes up before his face. 
So Jonah is told to actually go with this message. And then here comes the, uh, the big surprise in the story. The book of Jonah is full of surprises. Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. I say a surprise because if you've been reading the Bible a while, you might just read along here and you get to verse 3 and kind of what I expect to see is something like, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Right? Abraham, Noah, David. I mean, not that they obeyed perfectly, but we're kind of used to a narrative where, yeah, when God tells you to do something, that's, that's what happens. That's what people do. And I mean, really? Presumably Jonah wrote this book. Is he really going to just come out and admit to like outright rebellion? Um, is this even possible? I mean, <laughs> Jonah's contemporary Amos in Amos 3.8 says, The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Almost like, what else could possibly happen? Well, you know, and Jonah, it does say Jonah rose. He does obey the first command. God gives him two commands. He does arise. It's just that go part. He goes, it's just, well, he goes the wrong direction. In fact, later, when Jonah's describing this in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I made haste to flee. Jonah disobeys quickly. And sometimes... Forget that there is the very real possibility of disobedience. Like, we like to think that we're all basically good people who do the right thing most of the time. And of course, if the word of the Lord came to me and I had this very clear command, well, you know, I would do whatever God told me to do as soon as He told me to do it. Where does Jonah flee? Well, it says he no longer wants to be in God's presence, and it repeats this. Notice the repetition there. He goes to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. To Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It mentions Tarshish three times. Um, We see Tarshish in Genesis 10. Um, It might be Spain. Um, It might be basically as far as any ship would go at that time. Certainly it's in the exact, if we had a map up here, certainly it's in the exact opposite direction of where Nineveh is. That's probably, all of those things are probably significant. And Jonah departs from Joppa, which at that time, you know, for us, you could think of, hey, that's the major airport. Of course, that's where you're going to fly out of. You'll go to Joppa. Uh, Question for you. Can anyone think of someone else in the Bible who finds himself in Joppa And he receives an unexpected calling to go preach God's message to some Gentiles. Bible trivia question. Except he actually gets up and goes. Okay, well this is in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Peter, all right, the answer to the trivia question is Peter. Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter says to Cornelius... And uh, you can go ahead and turn there, actually. Acts 10, 28, because it might also... Help us understand Jonah a little bit too. All right, Peter's in Joppa. He's called to go preach to Gentiles. And Peter is going to succeed in the place where Jonah fails. In fact, maybe Peter even had this in mind. Uh, think, oh, I better go. I remember the last time somebody in Joppa didn't go to the Gentiles that God commanded. Peter did not want to end up in a fish. 
All right. In Acts 10, 28, Peter says to Cornelius, uh, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Peter also had the help of the vision of the animals, right? To also convince him this is a good idea. But, and, but this happened in Joppa. Verse 3, we also see that Jonah, back to Gen, or Jonah 1, verse 3, we see that Jonah paid the fare. Why, why does he bother to mention that he had to pay a fare? Well, it cost him something to do this. Um, he didn't just hide on the boat. He had to pay something. And I do kind of wonder if Jonah thinks that this fare is all his sin is going to cost him. Um, does Jonah actually think that all it takes is a little bit of money and you can outsmart God? Almost like money, in some sense, is more powerful than God. Now, that lie did not end with Jonah, right? Um, many are tempted to think that, well, actually, it's my money that controls what my life looks like and what my destiny is, rather than maybe what God's purposes might be. It says that Jonah went down to Joppa, and then he went down into the ship. Verse 5 says he's down in the inner part of the ship. Do, do you see the direction Jonah is going through the story? And especially later, he's really going <laughs> to go down. And verse 3 you know, mentions there to go with them, and I, the author is kind of Who's them? Wait, wait, who's he going with? It's, it's kind of encouraging you to keep reading here. Uh, but we're going to see very quickly, he's going to go with them. And Jonah is not going to be alone in this story. His sin is going to affect other people, as we'll see. Um, so let me stop here at verse 3, and, and we'll come back to um, pick up there in a second. But there, there is a big question that when you read the book of Jonah, I think you have to ask at some point, And it's, why is he doing this? Like, why is Jonah not going to Nineveh? And we don't find out till later, but it, chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says that the reason he didn't want to go, Jonah says that he's, he's, he was certain that God would relent of the disaster uh, when the Ninevites repent of their evil. And uh, you might say, okay, but why is that a reason? Um, it's clear that Jonah does not want God to show mercy to the Ninevites. And he seems to think that maybe if he does go and call out against Nineveh, God's going to end up showing them mercy. I don't know if Jonah thinks he's an amazing preacher, and of, of course they'll all get saved. Um, maybe he just assumes that, well, the only reason God's going to actually send me all the way there, I know God's going to be merciful, isn't he? He's not happy about that. And he's pretty confident that that's what's going to happen. And, and one of the huge underlying themes in the book of Jonah um, goes back to something that I know you've heard many times at this church. God is merciful. God is just. Right? God forgives sins, and yet God holds sin to account. There's love and truth. There's, gra there's grace and there's truth. Right? God's loving and God is holy. Or as Romans would put it, God is just and God's a justifier. And how on earth can you reconcile those two things together? How can God forgive anybody 
and still be true to his standards. There's, there's a huge tension here that's not easily dismissed, especially if you really want to understand the gospel. And Jonah seems to want to believe that, that God will show his, his covenant loving kindness mercy to his people, and God will show you know, his, that other side, his, his justice, his steadfast truth in punishing unbelievers the way they deserve. Jonah's not actually sure if that really is the way God's going to be, right? At this point, he's convinced that, what if God's merciful to the Ninevites? I think he is going to be, and he doesn't like that. He doesn't want God to be that way. He sees that as unfair, unjust. Those are the last people on earth that deserve God's mercy. Why does he think that, though? Why, what are the reasons that Jonah would hate the Ninevites so much? And I think, I think we really need to be super careful here um, and not sort of force the views of our culture um, or issues of our day onto the text. When it, when it doesn't give us really an explicit answer of why Jonah is so anti-Nineveh. And, you know, lots of things have been proposed. Um, I will point out one thing, though. Jonah does interact with these non-Jewish sailors. Uh, maybe even in a noble way. After all, he does in some way give his life for them, although it's a little unclear how much he cares about them because he's just sleeping at the beginning. But beyond that, Jonah is on his way to Tarshish, which presumably is not full of a bunch of Jews. Okay? There's probably a bunch of people in Tarshish who don't look like Jonah, don't think like Jonah, but that's where he's going. So if Jonah really hates the Gentiles that are in Nineveh, why are the sailors on the boat, or at least the Gentiles in Tarshish, why are they any different? Okay, and, and so some have said that Jonah's problem is, is one of racism, that he's hung up on ethnicity. Um, some have said maybe it's more like Phariseeism, that Jonah just thinks he's better than everybody else. Um, maybe it could be the Jewish cleanness thing, sort of like what Peter was mentioning in Joppa, that, that Jonah has certain rules about what it means to be holy and separate and clean, and there's, there's legalism here. Um, maybe it's political considerations. It's just nationalism. Um, you know, after all, in Kings there, we saw that Jonah did prophesy about the borders of his nation. Maybe he's just very patriotic. He's very pro-Israel politically, and that's why he doesn't like the other nations. Maybe it's just a desire for justice, right? Lord, these... These are just genuinely awful people. And, I mean, can we relate to that? Like, if, if God told you to go preach a message of salvation to, I don't know who it is, but the worst kind of person you could imagine right now, someone that in your mind really doesn't deserve in any way to have any kind of chance at mercy, are you going to be eager to obey that command? And we, you know, and we know evil people deserve consequences, right? That's justice. And God, God by no means acquits the guilty. And so, just just how compassionate am I supposed to be towards terrorists, towards evil monsters, towards Ninevites, towards the Assyrians? So we know God does punish the wicked. And yet, somehow, we also know, as our scripture reading, as, as Jesus taught us, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. So really, Jonah, the question here, are are you the one who gets to decide who gets justice and who gets mercy? Is that your decision, Jonah? Is God allowed to show mercy if he wants to? Whatever the reason might be, um, you know, it's clear that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows it might mean mercy for them. And I guess there's another question we need to ask here too, which, okay, maybe we can kind of see why Jonah doesn't want to go. Um, but why does he flee? Why doesn't he just stay where he's at? I mean, just because you really don't want to go to Nineveh, I don't think means you have to get on a boat and go the other direction. I mean, most of the time for me, if I don't want to go somewhere, it's usually because I just want to stay in my house. So why, why doesn't Jonah just stay home? Like, why is he actively running in the opposite direction? And the text tells us it's something about God's presence, right? It repeated over and over, getting away somehow from the presence of God. Jonah wants to get away from God. Not just, I don't want to go to Nineveh, and I just want to get away from God. And does, does he mean that in like a literal theological way? Like, does Jonah actually believe that God is some kind of territorial deity? Like, would have been very common in that time, right? The, you know, the, this nation has their God who's over here, and then you have the God up in the mountain, and you have the God down in the valley, and just gods are over certain regions. Does, does Jonah think he really can run away from his God? where God won't be able to see him and God won't be able to do anything to him. Um, Well, if he does think that, very soon he's not going to think that anymore. Uh, In verse 9, it says uh, that he calls out, he calls the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, which sounds like a God that would be very hard to escape if he's the God of heaven and the sea and the dry land. I will say, though, in chapter 2, Jonah's prayer does specifically mention God's temple more than once. We see it in chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 7. Almost like Jonah knows that God's presence is is somehow especially glorious in, in his place, in the temple. And perhaps, maybe he's not so sure if God is, you know, just as present all the way out at the ends of the earth at a place like Tarshish. I don't know. But... Surely Jonah knows Psalm 139, verse 7 to 10. Such such a beautiful piece of literature. I'll I'll read it for you. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Okay, I, I... Jonah reference there, right? If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knows Psalm 139. Um, and so before you say, silly Jonah, I mean, how, how dumb of Jonah to think he could actually run away and hide from God. Really? Really? You've never run away from God? You've never gone in the opposite direction of what he told you to do. You've never convinced yourself that oh, God doesn't see me right now. God won't care about this. I've kept a secret from everybody. God won't know. God won't see. I have a right to do whatever I want. You know, when the Bible talks about the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
I'm not sure that he's talking about a committed atheist. He might be talking about every one of us who are very capable of acting like fools, acting so foolishly that at least for a moment, we act like there is no God. That we can actually get away from God's presence. And so Jonah flees because Jonah thinks, well, I know he's God, but I can get away from his command. I don't have to do this. I don't have to be a prophet anymore. I'm not going to serve this God. And, and I say serve because really to live in God's presence is to be his servant. Elijah uses the phrase, in whose presence I stand, as Elijah's way of describing the fact that I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm, I'm called to be his prophet. And so Jonah's leaving it behind. I don't want this calling anymore. And, you know, I also wonder if, does Jonah really think he's going to get away with this disobedience? I mean, okay, I know if, if I can just pretend God won't see me or get away from him, I can get away with this, maybe. And, and maybe Jonah even thinks, you know, well, if, if God's going to be merciful to the Ninevites of all people, whose sin is despicable, then he forgive this little sin that I'm committing right now. I mean, I just got on a boat. That's all I did. Um, Of course, the irony there is that Jonah has a very clear command, literally from the word of the Lord, from the mouth of God himself, that he directly defies. And in in the last verse of this book, we see that Nineveh described as, they don't even know their right hand from their left, um, in terms of their revelation and their... Um, what, what God expects of them, the responsibility to it. And so, you know, we, again, I paused here at the end of verse 3, and you come to the end of verse 3, and I just want to stop here. If this is the first time you ever read the story, you know, you ask yourself, what will happen, you know, next time on Jonah? Well, the story stops right here. Like, he's on, he's, he's on the boat, and he's, they're headed out to sea, and what's going to happen next? I mean, is Jonah actually going to go all the way to Tarshish? Uh, what's he going to do once he gets there? Um, will Jonah have a change of heart? Will God kill Jonah? Uh, will God send somebody else to be his prophet in Nineveh? Will all the Ninevites like perish because Jonah didn't go and it's all his fault? Um, will we ever figure out what Jonah's really thinking? Well, let's keep going, right? Because Jonah has his plan. But as you know, Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So, God may allow Jonah to disobey. He may allow him to make this sinful choice, but it is not going to thwart the plan of God whatsoever. So verse 4 says, The, the Lord hurled, um, and that's kind of, imagine in the Old Testament, King Saul hurling a spear. That's, that's the word there. The Lord hurled a, a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened, or the, the ship thought about breaking up. And then the, the mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to his God. And the assumption here is that probably they all have their own gods, maybe from their territory. Um, and those gods are certainly not like Jonah's God, right? Who, who can't be, you can't flee from his presence. You can't get away from this God. You can't get away from this God who could actually throw a wind onto the sea. And so the, the, the mariners start hurling, same word, the cargo that's on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. And I just kind of noticed there that men hurl cargo, the Lord hurls wind. Notice the difference in power. So the cargo goes into the sea, almost like 
This is a great sacrifice. If we just maybe give up our stuff, maybe we can be saved. And, you know, I already pointed out, you know, in Joppa was a place where uh, Peter succeeds that Jonah fails. Um, here's a good place to point out a place where um, Paul succeeds in a story where Jonah fails. Uh, you might remember, this is in Acts 27. Paul's on a ship. There's a tempest. There's a huge storm. The sailors are throwing cargo into the sea, right? And what does Paul do in that situation? He's not sleeping, okay? What does Paul do? This is Acts 27, 25. Paul says, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God. Big contrast with our, our, our main character here, Jonah. Jonah is asleep. In fact, everyone is praying except for the one guy who actually knows the true God, Jonah, who's asleep, not praying. Jonah has gone down into the inner part of the sheep, into the ship, laid down fast asleep. And so, verse 6, the captain comes, says to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Ooh, that last, the, the words from the captain there, I think they really stung Jonah. Do you see the, the first two things here? That, well, no, what do you mean, you sleeper? And then he says, arise, call out. Two commands. Has Jonah ever heard those two commands before? Arise and call out. Oh, man, that was the word of the Lord. And now the captain is repeating those things. Jonah, ouch. I imagine as soon as he hears that, he knows what's happening here, right? He's supposed to call out to your God, and Jonah's like, oh, you mean the one I fled from? I'm not sure that we're on speaking terms right now. The captain says, perhaps that God will, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And the words of the captain here, the theology of the captain here, um, is pretty similar to what the king of Nineveh says later in the book. Chapter 3, verse 9, the king of Nineveh says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the captain of the boat here, the king of Nineveh, perhaps God will give a thought to us. Who knows? He might relent. We, we might not perish. They have a category that God can do as he pleases. God might show us mercy. He might save us. Who knows? And the only one in the story who's not granting God that ability is Jonah. Jonah's not giving God the freedom to do as he pleases. Verse 7, the sailors say to one another, uh, let's cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. That word evil is the same as the word disaster. We see that word throughout the book. God's going to bring disaster on Nineveh because of their evil. It's the same word uh, throughout the story. And they decide to cast lots. So what do you do when none of your gods answer you? I guess you try anything. You start casting lots. And, you know, you might be, I mean, some of us might be a little surprised that the lot actually came up on Jonah because you're thinking, well, I mean, that was just a chance event, right? Um, well, is that somehow more miraculous than God just like hurling a wind onto the sea? I mean, sometimes I think we think that, you know, if God's going to do a miracle, it needs to be a big thing like the weather. 
Like God's not going to mess around with, you know, if I'm, how the dice are going to show up when I roll them, something tiny like that. But is divine intervention surprising if we already believe that God is sovereign over the whole universe and all the laws of nature? Proverbs 16.33 explicitly says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And while we're talking about lots here and and casting lots, um, we probably at least need to mention a, a story that's included in all four Gospels. And that's when Jesus is on the cross, the pagans around him cast lots to see who's going to get Jesus' clothes. And they don't realize that in that very moment, the wrath of God is directed at Jesus as a substitute for his people. And so you compare that scene at the cross with what we see here. We've got some pagans around Jonah casting lots. and They're trying to figure out why God's wrath is being directed at them. And as a result, they're going to essentially make a substitute and throw a sacrifice into the water. Verse 8, they said to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Which these sailors are awfully polite. Okay? They rolled the, you know, they rolled the dice. That was supposed to tell them who the problem was. And it pointed at Jonah. And I guess, well, we'll at least ask him. Right? I mean, it's something like, you know, Jonah... We kind of think that you might be the problem here, but what do you what do you think? They ask him, on whose account has this evil come upon us? Well, it's Jonah, right? Jonah's sin has brought about this evil, this disaster. And all sin does that. It's it's a moral law of the universe. In in fact, what's the word for it? Justice? Is that the word for it? You know that thing that Jonah really wants? Wait, Jonah, do you, you just want that for Nineveh though, right? Like not for you to, to get what you deserve. It's also a good reminder that, you know, all evil and disasters in the world, it's all due to sin. You know, just, just like these sailors, we experience storms, we experience disasters, we experience calamity. And on and on. And it might not be our fault, right? It's not directly due to our own sin. We just live in a world that's full of sin and the consequences just spill out all over everybody. The sailors aren't the ones getting judged here. Jonah is. And yet, they're going through this storm. And and so they ask the very natural question, on whose account? On whose account? And that's a question that we all ask when suffering comes, when a storm comes. Why, God? Why this suffering? On whose account? Or, or like they asked Jesus, right? Who sinned that this man was born blind? Well, it wasn't him. It wasn't his parents. People are just born blind in a world that's full of sin. And God has some purposes for his glory in that. God has a purpose for this storm, especially in the lives of these sailors, as we see. Okay, so everything's pointing at Jonah, and at this point, they just pepper him with questions, right? They're in verse 8. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? Right? Things are, I think, kind of tense on the boat right now. We're about to die. Please answer our questions. And what's interesting is, well, how should Jonah actually answer these questions at this point in the story? Right? 
How, what's your country? Well, it's not Assyria, I can tell you that. What's your occupation? So, like, I don't really have one. I used to be a prophet, but I kind of quit. Really, if we put these four questions together and try to summarize, the question really is, who are you, Jonah? Like, what is your identity? At this point in your life, like, Jonah, who are you? And in, in the middle of this big storm, God looks at Jonah and forces him to ask, answer the question, yeah, who, who am I? And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've run from God. Maybe you found yourself in a storm. And at some point, you're going to be asking this question, who am I? How does Jonah answer? Well, verse 9, he says to them, I'm a Hebrew. I notice he doesn't use the word Israelite. That, that would be the, the word the foreigners would use. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Right? And it's the Lord, not just God. It's the name of Israel's God, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I can't help noticing that little adjective there on the word land. Because that's the the kind of land they all want right now. It's the kind they're going to try to row for. It's the kind that Jonah's going to get spit out on later. Dry land. But when Jonah's asked to consider his identity, what's he go back to? Well, he starts with, yeah, I'm a Hebrew. And I think that was very important to him. It's, I think, a core part of maybe why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. But Jonah in this moment realizes, perhaps... There's something even more important than that, you know? I fear the Lord. That's who I am. And how do the sailors take that? Well, verse 10, right? He's just described to them this God who apparently is in charge of heaven and the sea and the dry land, like Lord over everything. And so verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. Literally, they feared a great fear. And they said to him, what have you done? <laughs> like, even they get it. Like, you, you don't just run from God. Like, what are you doing? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. So it's obvious to everyone, to Jonah, to the sailors, it's obvious to everyone what's happening here, right? Whoever Jonah's God is, he is not messing around. That's That's why the storm's here. And so Jonah says to them, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So when God hurls a wind, it seems like hurling cargo is not going to cut it. A bigger hurl is needed here. They've got to hurl Jonah in the sea. Um, I noticed there that Jonah says, the sea will quiet down for you. And this tempest has come upon you. You know, at the beginning of the story, we probably think of Jonah as a very heartless, non-compassionate kind of guy. And he is. But at least at some level right here, it seems like Jonah is at least aware of some other people. Right? He says, okay, it'll at least quiet down for you. I know that I brought this storm on you. He's, he's at least sort of thinking about the sailors at this point. There's some compassion in Jonah. And even there's, a, there's a, a noble act here that in some sense Jonah just sacrifices himself for, for them. 
to save everybody else. And I do think at this point, I assume that Jonah thinks his life is over. He's certain this is the end. I ran from God, and God is ending me. And that's it. Verse 13, I told you these sailors were incredibly, they're polite, and they're kind. I mean, the irony between all the pagans in the story versus how Jonah acts, it's, it's thick. Verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. These pagan sailors care about Jonah's life. They're incredibly compassionate. They don't want God to, to destroy this man. They care more about him than he cared about them, and certainly more than he cares about the Ninevites. And yet, Jonah is the, Jonah is the reason they're in the storm, right? He brought this storm on them. It's all his fault, and yet they're doing everything in their power to try to save him. They can't. The irony is heavy. So verse 14, these sailors call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They are no longer praying to their gods. In fact, they're not even just praying to a generic Elohim. They are praying to the capital L-O-R-D, the name of Israel's God, by name. I would even argue they're praying a sinner's prayer right here. Okay? They know that there's disaster in the world because of sin. They fear perishing. They know this Lord has power. They're afraid of being found guilty before this God, right? They know that he's sovereign. And they think that this God of the Hebrews deserves to be feared. And they think he can save them. I mean, I don't know what else you want in a a prayer that would just say, your God, save me. And there's another irony here when we remember these were the, the guys casting lots. If we go back to the scene at the cross... Jesus prays, Father, forgive them about those who are casting lots. And here, it's the ones that are casting the lots that are praying, Father, forgive us. Notice, too, what they say at the end of 14, an important point. O Lord, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Who do they see God to be? Well, earlier they said, perhaps God will give a thought to us. Who knows, God might return and relent, right? Lord, you do as it pleases you. And I think this is the lesson Jonah needs to learn. God has the freedom to relent from his anger. Sinners might not perish. In other words, God can do as it pleases him. Maybe Jonah doesn't understand how God can forgive and be just, but we know, we know that through Jesus, it pleases God to do just that. And God will do as he pleases. Jonah's got a gospel lesson to learn here. So verse 15, they, they pick up Jonah and they hurl. Lots of hurling going on. In fact, later the, the whale's going to hurl as well. But they pick up Jonah, they hurl him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. The raging. God's wrath, God's anger in action. It stops. It's satisfied. And so God does show mercy to these pagan sailors, but only with a sacrifice, right? Jonah takes basically all of God's wrath on himself, on their behalf, and now they're out of the storm. 
And so as we consider sort of these deep themes of, of mercy and justice that are all over this book of Jonah, yes, God can extend mercy, but perhaps at a cost to someone. And we know that, that God will accept a substitute in his economy of justice. And so what happens next, we might wonder, do the sailors say, whew, I am glad that is over with. That is the worst storm I have ever seen. I'm, I'm just glad to be alive. Or, you know, is the story, it's, it's all like, oh, Lord, please save me, please save me. And then as soon as the storm's over, okay, back to a sailor's life for me. Well, I think we see a mark of true conversion here, right? After, they've, after they get out of the storm, verse 16 says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And notice the progression here, verse 5, in their fear. Verse 5, the sailors feared. Verse 10, they feared with great fear. Now verse 16, they feared with great fear the Lord. An amazing act of God in their lives. I am a little curious just exactly what it is they sacrificed since it seems like they threw a lot of cargo off the ship. I don't know exactly what kind of vows they're making here, but whatever it is, they're worshiping. And they seem to be committed to following this God, the, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And, you know, I take this to be a genuine conversion of saving, saving faith and trust in this God. And, and isn't this awesome? Like, God uses Jonah's stupid rebellion to save all these pagan sailors who were just, they were just doing their thing. They're just taking another boat ride. And God got into their life through Jonah. Maybe the last thing that Jonah wanted to be used for. God forced him to do it. Now, you don't want to go save some pagans in Nineveh? Okay, fine. How about you save some on a boat first, and then we'll go do the Nineveh thing, right? And there's a powerful application here, too, in the fact that it was Jonah's rebellion. God knows how to turn evil to good, right? He does it here. He did it with Joseph. He does it with Jesus. God's not shocked by evil. He's not surprised by this disobedience. And now some, oh, no, now what's the plan? Yes, Jonah is morally responsible for his disobedience. But God's sovereign over all that. And he used it for his glory and to accomplish his plan, which was the salvation of souls. Now, could the story of Jonah end right here? Maybe it should. I think Jonah thinks it does. I think that that's it. It seems fair, right? And the message of the book would be something like, if you run from God, he will get you. But in the process, he just might show his power and, you know, save somebody else through those horrible circumstances. And that would be an amazing lesson. You know, in short, something like God punishes evildoers and he shows mercy to the repentant. As you know, though, the story doesn't end here. It, it's kind of like a Good Friday moment. The main character is left for dead. God's wrath was all directed at him, but Easter's coming. And it's coming in the form of a whale, okay, but it's coming. All right? And so that's for another chapter, another Sunday. My goal was to focus on chapter one. But I do want to point out a very clear way here that the story of Jonah previews the story of Jesus in another way, which is when you think of Jonah, crazy but true. You might remember another story with somebody asleep in a boat, right? So turn with me to Mark 4, Mark 4, we 
find another storm, someone asleep, right? Mark 4, verse 35. And we'll, we'll wrap up with this. In Mark 4, 35, it says, On that day when evening had come, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, his disciples, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And catch this. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Jesus and Jonah are both asleep when the storm strikes. The disciples are scared. The sailors were scared. Now, Jesus is in, in the boat, not because he's running from God, because he was sent by God. And, and Jonah is, in some sense, sacrificed to, to save the sailors, and Jesus is going to die to save his disciples. But notice how the story here ends. In the story of Jonah, we see it's only the Lord, the God of, of heaven and sea and dry land, that can calm a storm. And yet, in this story, it's Jesus himself calms the storm, right? Jonah couldn't do that. And the response of the sailors and the disciples is the same. They're both filled with a great fear. The sailors, they fear the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And the disciples, who do they fear? This man, Jesus. Proving, proving what? That Jesus is the Lord. He is, he is this one that's in control of the storms. So let's close with some application. You know, I do think it's, it's wise for you to ask yourself if you're running from God. Um, you know, in a room with this many people, there's, there's probably somebody who's kind of stuck in some disobedience right now. And you know that you're going in the exact opposite direction from the word of the Lord. You know, maybe you've told yourself, no, it's not a big deal. It'll be okay. Uh, God would just want me to be happy, right? But you know deep, deep down that you are breaking God's laws. And so I ask you, is, is there some area of your life where you're fleeing his presence, trying to get away from him? You hope he doesn't see you. Maybe you've even moved past that point and it doesn't even bother you anymore. You're, you're indifferent. You're just snoozing in the boat, sailing off to Tarshish. And I warn you, there might be a storm coming. Sin always brings a storm, and it could cost you a lot, and it will hurt the people around you. Okay, so a warning, like Jonah, wake up, you're going the wrong way. Maybe you're asking the question the sailors were asking. You're finding yourself in the middle of a storm right now. It's not your fault. And you're asking the sailors' question, on whose account has this storm come on me? You would, if 
you could, you would just roll some dice if that would tell you why this is happening to you. You want to know why, why this suffering, God? And let me just say, storms do pass. Maybe not until you enter glory, okay? But storms do pass. They will end. And the peace and the calm of God will one day be yours. And your storm is not wasted. It's not pointless. God is doing something in that storm, even if you never see it. Okay, sorry. One more application. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's the people around you. They're feeling the storm right now. And they're like begging to know, who is your God? Well, don't be caught sleeping in the boat if that's what's happening, okay? Wake up to the people around you. They're in a storm and they want to know who your God is. Don't be asleep. Wake up. Don't be Jonah. Tell them about your God. I know you can't be Jesus and and stop the storm, but you can at least be Paul in the storm and say, take heart, men. I have faith in God. That's what they need to hear in the storm. I love this story, how the sailors turn to God and Praise God for it. And and let's just pray that God would be at work like that in the people around us. Hopefully because of our faithful witness, or perhaps like Jonah, maybe even in spite of our poor, poor example. But let's look for God to be at work in the lives of people around us. So I just ask you to consider, as you think about Jonah's lack of compassion for others, how are you doing? How about Jonah's lack of obedience? How are you doing? Jonah's lack of desire to be in God's presence. How are you doing? Let's pray. God, we are uh, so thankful for for this story. Um, You are an amazing God who who works miracles through through disobedience, through storms in the lives of people who are never expecting it. You're, You're so merciful to these sailors, to Jonah, ultimately to the Ninevites. Uh, You're a great God. And we we praise you for um, your care and and being there and being the one who, who does calm storms. God, wake us up, shake us up. If we're going in the wrong direction, if we're not seeing it, oh God, show us our way. For those in storms, God, guide us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.